Hey there, and welcome to the Agentic Voice Podcast. Welcome, my name is Kristen Ruiz, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Geneva Main. In today's episode, we're gonna be discussing racial trauma and resilience, and we have a very special guest today. Um, And before I introduce our guest, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our channels on Instagram, YouTube, and your favorite podcast, platform and let us know what you'd love to hear more about. We're planning a next season. And if there's things that you would love to hear more about, more stories, more topics, please let us know. So let me introduce our very special guest for today. His name is Dr. Jonathan O'White. He's an actor as well as a licensed and ASHA certified speech language pathologist. He holds a clinical doctorate in speech language pathology from Northwestern University. Dr. White is the owner of Elevated Speech Therapy Services. With over nine years of experience as an SLP, he has provided therapy in a variety of clinical settings and worked with both children and adults. Adults. He has recently started his journey into acting and has booked roles in several commercials. So, Dr. White, it is really a privilege to have you here today. You have such a powerful story, and we are honored to get to have a conversation with you about this very um, uh, profound topic. So, thanks for being here with us. Thank you for having me, and I'm really excited to talk with you guys. Awesome. So we usually start out with what we call our banter segment, and it's just what's new, what's good. And in this segment, we talk about whatever is new and interesting in our personal or professional lives, whatever we feel comfortable sharing. So originally, I had a completely different um, topic that I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about AI, but um, I'm going to hold off on that because I got the loveliest letter today, completely unexpected out of the blue, a blast from my past. I got this lovely letter in my email from um, Susan Bartlett, who was the clinical director and clinical supervisor at UConn when I was a master's level student. And she wrote this letter saying how she saw my name in ASHA publications. And she said, my mind immediately flashed back to interactions with me. And it made her smile as she remembered what a wonderful student I was. And like, it just made me feel so good. Like (laughs) knowing that people are rooting for you and watching you. And I mean, I'm not gonna lie, but like the master's program was difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and you know, you have your moments where you're like, oh, I'm glad I'm done with this, you know? And um, we all have our our, um, responses to institutions and, you know, um, positives and negatives of institutions, but it was so nice to like hear that people are rooting for you to win, you know? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that was the loveliest thing. That's awesome. so, yeah. And it's like a, like a full circle moment almost. Yes. Yeah. She said she was so proud and she wow. said, I knew back then that you were going, you were on track to become someone who would make a difference. And that makes me feel just it's amazing. Yes. <laughs> so it's doing what's good with you. You know, so I'm just at a place right now where I'm just really thankful for where I am. The journey that I've been working on for the last two to three years in acting is finally coming together. It's starting to take flight and, you know, I'm starting to book more jobs and really get into the place where I really want it to be. You know, I'm in that position now where everything that I've kind of prayed for and hoped for, I'm seeing. And uh, I got like a text from a friend today and they were like, you know, I saw you the other day and I'm just so happy for you. And I thought back to where you were a few years ago and to see where you are now, like happy looks really good on you. And I was like, wow, that's, (laughs) I had to take a moment to have some gratitude because sometimes when you're in the grind of a career, you don't really remember that where you hope to be is kind of where you are now so isn't that something yeah wow i think you and chris are going to be rivals for like the profound witty things like you both (laughs) say profound witty brief little things that we could put on t-shirts so (laughs) let's see all right score one for jonathan (laughs) where you are is where you hope to be okay remember that one right (laughs) i love that i have a, a little plaque upstairs um I just I love quotes in general. I just love them. Mm-hmm. I even love mm-hmm. Oscar Wilde's quote that says, I hate quotes. Like I just love quotes. And so the right. one quote I have on a plaque upstairs that says, um, like, I remember praying for the things that give me joy right now. 
Yeah. You know, and and there's something about that that you know, planting a seed, and you know, you pl put that you know when you're underground, you don't know what's gonna pop up. Exactly. But when you see those seedlings and you get that fruit, like wow, that is a great thing. Yeah. So, oh, that's awesome for you. I'm excited. Thank you. Thank you so much. And what's new and good with you, Kristen? Well today has been completely focused on um my daughter's graduation so she just graduated from high school and which is weird because like you know it's a thing people tell you that they grow up but it's just you don't know until you see it and i'm like how is this happening so it's bittersweet on my side but very joyful um and she's excited and she's all excited to go to actually to go to yukon um in the fall so Amazing. all today it has been about we you know attended the ceremony there's been festivities we're gonna go and see some family uh, later on tonight so so that's really the thing that's all encompassing as my husband and i process the idea of like the joy of where she's going but also <laughs> and what she's achieved um and she was able to be um the co-valedictorian of our class and graduating with honors and that wow. was hard one so we're celebrating on that but also like crying on each other's shoulders because we're like our baby oh my gosh so <laughs> it's just it's very bittersweet over here so that's where i am i'm in that space and i don't think i can think about anything else that's why i'm happy to have jonathan here he'll, he'll help me think about some other things <laughs> <laughs> oh man nice. yeah. leaving the nest <laughs> right oh everybody said it was gonna happen you know and you believe them but you don't know until you see it and you're like oh, yeah. shoot. it's real <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah so let's go ahead and step into our next segment um Jonathan, your YouTube video on why you left a lucrative career as a speech pathologist, it paints such a vivid picture of your experience in the field. And for those who have not yet seen it, can you share with us a little bit about your experience in the field and, and how and why you then transitioned from SLP to actor and entrepreneur? Yeah, so where do I start? Um, I, from the moment I got into the profession, I was really excited about kind of taking off and working on communication and swallowing disorders. You know, you start off in your undergraduate program and you're eager and you're excited. And in South Carolina, where I studied, we could actually work in the school setting um with our bachelor's degree so you go through like your last semester which is in an internship year you have to take the praxis and make a certain score on it and then you pretty much start work as a speech therapist you're not fully uh able to do everything a speech pathologist can do but you can test you can assess you can diagnose you're just pretty much supervised so you're pretty much like doing doing like a cf until you get your master's. So I went in and I started work in this very small town in South Carolina, I won't say the name. And I noticed immediately that I was the only black male professional there. And I didn't allow that to like uh, deter me or uh, worry me, but I quickly noticed that I wasn't really accepted in the school. I remember my first experience. I was kind of with a colleague and we were setting up our, my classroom, decorating it, making it look really nice for the school. And uh, one of the teachers, she walked up and she was like, hi, are you like the janitor or... And I was like, no, I'm the speech therapist. And she kind of stepped back and she gave me a look and she was like, oh, welcome to the school. And that kind of set the tone for what my experience was there. And I won't spend like a lot of time talking about everything, but I just, my experience in the field was plagued with a lot of issues, issues that I'm sure every speech therapist goes through, you know, the lack of safeguards, the burnout, the constantly having to take work home, but the main issue that I had was racism. 
and being plagued at different in different settings and different locations throughout my career with microaggressions, bullying, harassment, discrimination, never feeling like my credentials that I bring, my experience that I bring is enough. But the first thing that people would see is my skin color and my gender. And that's what they judged first. And it just never allowed me to feel settled in the profession. It never allowed me to feel happy about going to work every day. And I finally just got to the point where I was like, you know what? I can't keep dealing with this. I'm not happy. It's time to figure something else out. Yes, um, it's so funny because you talked about how they judged you on your skin color. And it's just, you know, I want to point out (laughs) that the judgments (laughs) that were made about your skin color didn't seem to be positive ones, right? No, no. It was always negative assumptions um, about your uh, credibility, about your skills, about, you know, your position. And so it's unfortunate that tied to um, mm-hmm. tied to black maleness are all of these um, negative assumptions, but it's not just black maleness because I've had my own experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were sharing your story on YouTube, I was watching it as a doctoral student at Kane University and I was doing um, research at that time on discrimination as a social determinant of health. Um, because I've shared in other spaces how I believe my voice disorder was very much tied to um, experiences of discrimination. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, so the fact that you wanted to leave the field, you know, made me think I was witnessing trauma symptoms related to discrimination. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Th- that's what I was hearing from you. So I don't know if you've ever spoken to anyone about racial trauma. Um, but from my own experiences with racial trauma, um, I understand that in the face of ongoing discrimination, people can experience trauma symptoms such as distress, avoidance, yeah. and what that meant for me for a long time was avoiding conferences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I never attended a conference, a speech conference, until... Wow. Last year was the first time, if you can That's imagine. Crazy. Yeah. Because, because the association for me of our field was just whiteness. And I'm not saying that to say that's a negative thing because I have, you know, interactions with many white people that are positive, but tied to our fields and just, I don't know how else to say, it. and I'm not being flipped, but it just felt like it would be a lot or too much. Like it would be a negative experience. So I avoided conferences for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, But so distress, avoidance, negative thoughts about um, yourself or others or the world, anxiety and depression, sensitivity and reactivity. These are all some of the kinds of uh, symptoms that people can have in the face of discrimination. And so it's not just racial discrimination. It can be um, sexism or, you know, related to your sexual orientation or Mm-hmm. all other kinds of discrimination but so what does does that resonate with you did you experience um the events that you described and it's traumatic <laughs> absolutely so it's funny that you mentioned that because it wasn't until maybe 2018 that i realized so i started going to therapy i was just at a place where i was so depressed and so unhappy and i mean going to work every day was a task I would wake up with just this level of anxiety and fear and I would leave depressed. I was crying in my car all the time. My conversations with my friends were being dominated by how much I hated the profession. And, you know, I was a travel therapist. So I'm constantly working in new places, new cities, new states, new settings, but starting a new job was so stressful. I would always fear like, are they gonna like me? Am I gonna deal with another racial experience? Am I gonna have issues? Are they gonna see how good of a therapist I am? Am I a good therapist? Am I gonna be able to succeed at this job? And I would just be so anxious. And then the racial experiences would happen, negative, and it would just happen all over again. And I was in therapy and I'm talking about it. And my therapist was like, after a few sessions, I don't know if you realize, but 
you are experiencing like PTSD, especially from the first situation that you experienced in South Carolina, but it's ongoing. And I was like, lady, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> we're in this climate now where we're trying to give everything a name. And I'm like, PTSD, that sounds a little extreme, but when she explained it and like you just explained the different symptoms, everything checked off. And I, it wasn't until I really sat down and thought about, like you said, the avoidance. I hated going to conferences. I did not want to go to ASH anymore because you don't see, like you said, enough of us. Mm -hmm. And you realize like, oh my gosh, I'm a unicorn in this profession. You know, this percentage of minorities, it's so small. And you go to these conferences, you go to these workplaces and you're almost like the only one Right. And you don't know how that's going to show up for you. So right. it just, it just, it kept me like bound. And because I realized, okay, this is PTSD. I realized the significance of it and the fact that I really needed to do something about it. Right. People might say, I think this is such a strange thing um, that you would want to have such um, symptoms around avoidance or avoid being in white spaces but my experience was the issue was is this going to be a safe space a safe space yes yep right because is something going to happen like you know when you talk about with trauma a sense of hypervigilance mm -hmm. is something mm -hmm. going to happen is something going to make me uncomfortable am i yeah. going to feel welcome here and um that is um really the biggest part i think of of racial trauma and mm -hmm. why why you seek out the support of an affinity group of people who look like you or who can understand uh the experience kristen you look like you had something you wanted to yeah, say yeah um so what, what, the one thing i want to ask is um in going to the conferences mm -hmm. what i'm hearing is the there's the the avoidance because it might not be a safe space did you have experiences in the conference where it was not safe? Yes. <laughs> so okay. when I was in undergrad, um, my mentor and our department chair, she was like the VP of ASHA at one point, I think in like 2005. So she always drilled in us the importance of being a part of ASHA, being a part of the organizations and I was so excited. I think it was like my junior year going into my senior year or maybe the end of my senior year, I can't remember, but I was like, okay, I'm gonna go to ASH, I'm gonna network and I am going to just enjoy being around people that are in the space where I want to be in. And I get there and I'm getting like the nastiest looks. And I'm like, okay, I'm with my colleague, my classmate and we're noticing it, but we're trying not to you know, say anything. And then we're walking around and people are like, hey, do you know where the bathroom is? Do you know where such and such is? Are you the janitor? And it's like, huh? <laughs> do you not see this badge? Like, What's going on? And then, I mean, it just continued and people just looked, I'm not exaggerating, disgusted that we were there. Like, what are you doing at our conference is the idea that I got. And it did not feel nurturing. It did not feel safe. I was extremely confused because I grew up in South Carolina, but I grew up in a very small community with white, black, Asian, Hispanic, and I never really dealt with racism. So this was a completely new experience for me. And, you know, my parents always told us like whenever we would have conversations because they weren't extensive conversations about racism and what that looked like, it was get your degree, become a productive citizen in society and people will respect you. So you start to think like, I'm getting that, I'm doing that and I'm still being looked at as the janitor. It's weird. And then I went to Mbosla, the National Black Association Conference for Speech and Language Pathology. And it was a completely different vibe, a completely different environment. It was loving, it was nurturing. And there you had black, white, everyone but the vibe was just a lot more nurturing and loving and accepting. So I saw the difference in going to the conferences. And yeah, I went to another ASHA after that and same exact experience. So I haven't been since. Yeah, it's 
think about Kristen, like why people go to conferences, um, you know, speech pathology is just like a lot of voice teachers work in isolation. You don't work with other voice teachers unless you network. And so when you're going to a conference, you're looking for the affinity of being with your colleagues, people who understand your language, your training, you know, your questions. And so you have that need for that kind of professional connection and development. But I think for a lot of um, African-American or minority SLPs, when you're going into an environment where you are minoritized, um, you don't know if you're gonna experience that kind of support. You don't know if it is a safe space and if you're going to deal with microaggressions. So that's the challenging part of it. Jonathan, when you were when you were talking about, you know, the your younger self being excited to go, I remember that excitement yeah. mm -hmm. of like, because also when you're a young professional, it's like a chance to connect with other people to mm -hmm. learn, you're mm -hmm. like, there, there, there's a professional momentum in these. And so mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. you were talking, I can, I can feel physically the, the violation of expectation. Yeah. Yes, of, of I love that. Yeah. 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 Score score one for Kristen. One for Jonathan, one for Kristen. The, the violation, violation of expectation. I'm just doing right. that. <laughs> yep. So I just want to make take a minute to highlight the two major types of discrimination as individual and structural. So in your um, YouTube video on Talks with John, you gave a lot of experiences of the individual discrimination. Um, the kind that we talk about in the field um, in terms of DEI trainings is the structural discrimination related to the fact that there aren't many um, Black or minority SLPs. So uh, the last time I checked, maybe in the last two years, the number was at like 3.5%. Right. Mm -hmm. um, recently, I saw a post on social media where someone had said it gone up to 4.8. I haven't checked for myself, but think about that. Like yeah. in a country where about 15% of the population is African-American, only um, around 4% of us are, are Black. But the people that we serve, especially in schools or in public hospitals, overwhelmingly, it's like minoritized people. Mm -hmm. And so there's a disconnect. So there's a um, structural or systemic disconnect. Um, and oftentimes when people talk about these things in DEI trainings, people have very mixed responses um, from like racial gaslighting, like you're making it up you know, or to people can have some profound guilt. Um, but for you, Jonathan, uh, under ideal circumstances, how would you want listeners to respond to your racial um, autobiography, your very personal lived experiences of racism? What would be the ideal response in your mind? So when I released the video, I mean, it was probably the most fearful I had ever been because you are taking your experience that, that was so personal and now you're putting it out for everyone to judge and talk about and respond to and you kind of take the risk because you understand that that's what's going to happen you know with social media people get the chance to comment and just say whatever they want to say so I was really nervous, like, how are people going to take this? Am I going to be shunned in the profession? But since releasing the video, it has been overwhelmingly positive, the responses. Um, I get responses from colleagues in and out of the profession, from hopeful uh, students who want to get into speech pathology. And like I said, it's been overwhelmingly positive. It's been overwhelmingly positive. I have had maybe a handful, I can count on maybe one finger, the level of negative experiences I've had, especially the, I need to invalidate his experience yeah. responses. So it's weird, like whenever I would get those, you know, I don't really know if what you experienced is racism because I kind of dealt with the same thing in my workplace and I'm a white lady and I worked in a black space and I, did, I, I dealt with the same things that you dealt with. Is that really racism? 
And I would get like so upset and I would call my friends and I would try to clap back professionally. But then I just got to the point where I'm like, you know what? I don't have to validate my experience to you. You know, what my experience was is exactly what I said it was. And it doesn't matter whether or not you accept it. I, I don't have to prove that to you. It's it's personal, it's experienced, and it's nuanced. And I don't have to sit down and say, well, this is why. And no, I, I don't have to do that. So what I want for people to do is, first of all, check your biases, Check your racial biases. If you're not a minority, if these are experiences that you're hearing for the first time, ask yourself like, am I that coworker that he's talking about? Am I that colleague? Do I kind of do these things sometimes unintentionally? And I want people to do research into what people that don't look like you experience talk to your colleagues. And if you do have that guilt, if you're not that person who's angry because this experience just sounds like it's made up or you just can't believe it, if you are accepting and you are loving and you understand, show support, of course, to me, but also to people who look like me in the workspace. Protect them, love on them, check on them. And again, do the research to figure out, am I creating a safe space for my colleagues and my uh, the people who don't look like me. And I also want people to, um, if you're getting into the profession, don't watch the video and say, oh my God, I can't get into a profession like this. This sounds too negative. I want people to be informed. I want people, whenever you're making a decision, you should always be able to weigh the pros and the cons, the risks and the rewards, the benefits. And I want people to be able to make a full decision, understanding, okay, if I do get into this as a minority, this is a potential experience that I may have. And I now have someone that I can reach out to, talk to, to ask questions, to create a safe community for me. And I want other people who may be experiencing what I experienced um, to feel validated. You know, I would look around for people who had situations and stories like mine, and I couldn't find it. I would Google speech therapy, being Black, being a Black male in speech pathology, and it's, I kept seeing all this positive stuff. And I'm like, am I crazy? Like, am I the only one dealing with this? And I would talk to my Black colleagues and my colleagues of color, and they would share similar experiences. But when you look on the ASHA leader, the ASHA website, you can't find other people talking about this stuff. And I definitely didn't see it on YouTube. I may have come across like a couple articles on people's personal blogs, but never having uh, a feeling that other people are dealing with this and I can reach out to reach out to them to figure out how to deal with it too. So. Right. So is that your motivation for starting the uh, the YouTube channel, Talks with John? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was also like, I was the editor-in-chief of my university newspaper in college. Mm -hmm. So I realized early on the importance of telling your story, using your voice, and seeing how that can bring about change. And I realized like, okay, if I'm not seeing it, I know other people are experiencing it and we need to create a space where we're talking about this because I want people to feel validated. I want people to know what's going on. I want to bring awareness. Yeah. Yeah. As you were talking about, you know, what you would want a response to be, I just feel like the only reasonable response a person can have when someone is sharing an experience of hardship is a response of empathy. Yes. Like just listen and yes. be empathetic, you know? I think people get so uncomfortable with racism that it's hard for them to show empathy when hearing those experiences, even though they could show empathy in other situations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's so bizarre. Yeah. Yes, yes. It's bizarre to me. And, and um, I think even sometimes the feeling of guilt, um, this internalizing of guilt, like Kristen, you had said to me um, when we were talking about this episode, 
was that you realized uh, your privilege or how you have benefited sure. from systems of racism. And so that's where the guilt has come from. I, I think guilt is definitely um, uh, a reaction that some people have. I think on my side, it's just recognizing that the the we're not living in an egalitarian system mm -hmm. and that the system, the way it's built is going, there's going to be some people who privilege and, and get more benefits out of it than others. And I think just being, being aware of that is, is such an important piece of the puzzle. And, and like Jonathan, you were saying, you know, about like, it's important to tell stories. I mean, that's one of the reasons we love this podcast is, is, there are stories that are really, really powerful. And I think when, um, you know, I'm somebody like my, my daughter, I was joking around my, my husband's Puerto Rican. And so my, my daughter's biracial. And when she was little, she was like, you know, daddy, she's like, daddy's, I think she said brown or caramel, something like that. And she's like, I'm tan. And I thought she was gonna say, and mommy's white. She was like, and mommy's pink. So, like, <laughs> so I, I, wow. I, but I live and move and um, experience the world as part of the 95% in the field, right? right. Um, and so um, my experiences, if I'm going to assume that my experiences are the norm for everybody, I'm gonna have a way of viewing the world. If I actually stop and listen to the story. So telling the stories is part of the importance. But I think the other part is for those of us who are listening and for those that maybe are a little pink, um, I think <laughs> to listen with curiosity about what is the, what is the, the lived experience of the person right in front of me. And I think, you know, in my background um, and research, it's been in adult development as well as in voice pedagogy. Um, and in adult development, we really look at the idea of we are meaning making machines. Like from the mm -hmm. time we're little, we are trying to make sense of what we're experiencing, what we're seeing. In fact, if somebody tells us a story and, and it like doesn't compute, like you're saying this thing and I'm seeing this thing, well, it doesn't match. So I we are actually wired to then make meaning of what does that mean? And so then what what we have to look at is when I'm making meaning of that story, am I trying to make meaning of it so that I don't have to change a current scheme of understanding the world? Or now do I have to make meaning of it and say, oh, there's something else that has to be reconciled? You know? And I think that's that's the part that is um, really important when it comes to listening to stories. What are what are we going to make me how do we make meaning of that story and that's where i think compassion curiosity and wanting connection has to be part of it yeah i was thinking about um what jonathan said about the overwhelming support that you were getting for people like most of the responses were just overwhelmingly positive and there were just a few that people were negative or trying to be invalidating and I'm like, well, that's how racism works, right? It's yeah. like the slow uh, bites, the mosquito bites, the microaggressions um, that you experience here and there over time. This is what makes you vigilant towards, I don't mm -hmm. want to experience this again. It's not that every experience that you're having with someone who looks different from you is a negative one. Mm -hmm. It's just that, you know, these little mosquito bites. If you knew that the mosquito bite was coming, you know, you prepare, you put some repellent, you know? Mm -hmm, if mm -hmm. you knew the mosquito bite was gonna happen here, you'd set yourself up for it, but it, it comes from one direction, then another. It comes, you may be a couple minutes apart, it comes a couple months apart, a couple years apart, you know? So, so this is, I think, what's hard about it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Everything you guys are saying is so profound. I feel like I'm in like a little therapy session. It, it feels so healing and I'm getting like a lot of understanding. And it's, it's, it's always just been so weird to me how, like you said, people can move in a space of his experience doesn't sound like my experience. So that must not be true. You know, you have to really come from a place of privilege to think like that. I would never like sit down, watch a YouTube video where someone's talking about, you know, their experience in the workplace, like a woman who may have been sexually assaulted and sit down, watch the video and say, well, hold on. That can't be true because my boss 
she's a woman and she rubs my shoulder sometimes. She rubs my leg. I'm not a woman. I can't speak from a place of being a woman and understanding your experience. The only thing I can really do is listen, be aware and have empathy. And I think that's where the disconnect lies with people who just can't seem to grasp experiences that are outside of their own. The other hope I have in like in, in this kind of story is the idea that even for someone who says, it it can't be in the field. I mean, we're supposed we're supposed to be very progressive, right? We're about voice, right? right? <laughs> I mean, so if 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 there's some part that wants to invalidate it, what I what I do love is that you're explicitly saying this was my experience, and so right. then it raises the awareness. It's like if um, there's an example or an activity we do with with students sometimes where we'll say, you know, look around the room and see what you notice and then look around the room, but notice the color orange, you know, and you look around mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you, you can't help but see like all these pieces of orange that you, like you didn't see it before. So um, um, I think it's called the reticular activating system. But anyway, we can all look that up later and see if that was right. Um, but the I think telling a story like this that then when somebody in the 95% that's going through days, weeks, months, and years in a field going to conferences and then keeping their eye out, they might start to see the color orange where they wouldn't have seen it before. Cool. So switching gears for a bit, let's talk about acting, which is a lot more fun. (laughs) Well, we know so many performers running to the SLP world, and here you are running opposite track to the arts. So we view your journey in becoming an actor as such an exercise in agency. Can you tell us a little bit about the steps you took and how you got your first gig? Yes. So I always wanted to be an actor ever since I was like six years old. Um, I grew up in church. My father's a pastor. And every third Sunday, we would do these church plays. And I, you know, the little kids, we get like the one line skits for Easter, but then you have the teenagers, they were making up their own plays, creating their own characters and putting on these performances. And I just remember wanting to be a part of that. And I finally got a chance and I did it. And it just felt like like home, you know, the thing that I was supposed to be doing for the rest of my life. And, you know, I grew up in the 90s and the early 2000s where we had like a true Hollywood story and behind the music. And you got to see the journey of your favorite entertainers. And so I knew like, okay, acting is not going to happen in South Carolina. I need to move to New York or LA. So I grew up telling everybody when I finish high school, I'm going to move to LA and pursue my acting career. And of course I had like the academic answer, I'll be a doctor, but the true passion lied with acting. And one day my mom kept hearing me say it and she was like, okay, listen, you're great and all, but acting is not guaranteed. And if you want to make it in this world without having to rely on us, you need to get your degree because no one can take that from you. And and they instilled the importance of education. So I acquiesced and I started pursuing speech pathology. And I remember in college, I had always done like drama camps and theater and stuff in church, like I said, but in college, I wanted to join their theater program. And I auditioned, we had to do like two monologues, sing and dance, and I didn't get in. And I was like, well, maybe I'm not that good. Maybe, you know, my little small town in South Carolina, they loved it, but they're not feeling it at the collegiate level. So maybe this thing isn't for me. So it kind of killed my dream. Later on down the line, I found out it was because I didn't do like Shakespearean monologues. It had nothing to do with the audition itself, but From there, I was like, all right, I guess it's this speech thing. And I tried to make it work. Like I said, it wasn't working. I kept having these negative experiences. And eventually I ended up in LA and I was like, okay, I have to go back to acting. I remember I was in like my second quarter of my doctoral program and it hit me like, this is not it. So I started doing my research. I was very green. I thought that you could just find a movie or TV show online, 
figure out where the audition was, line up, go in the room, blow them away, and then you're a star. And then finding out that's not the way it works. You have to like work your way up, take classes and do all the things. So I started taking classes and my passion for it was just reignited. And um, I think that was maybe like 2019. I was gaining some momentum, taking classes, perfecting my craft, and then COVID happened. So that kind of sat me down. And I think it was like 2021, um, I finally started reaching out to agents. Like I took some headshots and I learned that, of course, they want you to have experience before they allow you to come on set. But casting directors, they also look at the fact that you take classes and agents also look at the same thing. So I took a lot of classes. So I had things on the resume and I reached out to agents and that's how I secured my commercial agent. And, you know, that's every actor's dream. You think, oh my gosh, I have an agent now. I'm going to be a star. Yes. And then he helps you get in the room, but it doesn't guarantee that you're going to book the job. Right. And just a little bit of background um, for every role that you see, like, for example, in a commercial, for every person you see on that commercial, it re requires a breakdown to be sent out to agents. Agents then send it out to their actors and they hope that they will get a hit. But for every role, uh, casting directors can get up to like 3,000 submissions. Wow. Right, for every role. And then from there, agents submit you. They go through little thumb size headshots to see who's going to be the right fit for the role based on what the director wants or the advertisement agency wants, if it's a commercial. And then they bring you in. So maybe like out of those 3,000, they may audition like 100 or 200 actors. And then you do a callback. And then you book the job. And I learned like over time that sometimes it has nothing to do with your talent, but everything to do with your look, your personality, what they're looking for. Like I said, if it's a commercial, there's an advertisement agency attached to it. So you can be the most talented actor in the world, but if they don't think you have the look to sell their product, they're not going to book you for the job. So it's been like a lot of waiting, hoping, praying. And I learned that too much hope is a bad thing. You know, um, I would get an audition and get so excited for it. And I would pray, I would manifest, I would journal, I'm going to book this job. And it didn't happen. So you fall into this like depression. And you, I remember one of my first auditions was for Sunchips. I did the audition. First of all, like I had to sneak away from work to do it because now we're in this space of self tapes. Um, since COVID, they don't bring you to, into the audition room a whole lot anymore. You have to do it at home. So I submitted myself tape. Maybe like two weeks later, I get the call back. And I'm like, okay, I'm one step closer. I do the call back. I feel really good about it. I go back to work and the secretary, she sees me and she didn't have an idea that I auditioned. I didn't tell anybody. And she's like, Mr. Jonathan, do you want some sun chips? And I was like, okay. That's a sign. I just auditioned for self-tapes. I'm going to book this job. And I didn't book it. <laughs> and you just, you get so excited every audition, but then you learn that you just kind of have to do the work. You have to continue perfecting your craft and you can hope, you can pray, but after you do your audition, give yourself five minutes to feel excited or however you're going to feel about it and then move on until you get the next one. So it took about maybe seven months of auditioning to book my first commercial. And nice. since then it's been, you know, a, a continuum, but it definitely hasn't been like a smooth transition where I'm just booking job after job after job. Well, and despite this, like just hearing you talk about it, it's clear that this is something that you should be doing because you just light up, honestly. Yeah. And like, I remember, have you read Viola Davis's book? Yes. Isn't it is so my, good? So good. I love Favorite actress. Book. It's one of my favorite books now. I just, I love her. So remember the part where she talked about how she was going to become a teacher because she was like, I just need money. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, she fell into a deep depression because she was like, I'm leaving acting. I'm going to become a teacher. 
And then it was then that she realized, no, I have to pursue this, even if it's hard, even if she's going to meet the rejections and not make a lot of money. And I mean, look at her now, you know? Exactly. Yeah. That's a wonderful um, story. So let's move now into our third segment, our third and final segment. And we usually talk about an agentic practice that empowers people, um, empowers voices. And we've been talking so much about shared stories and lived experiences that I think we'll just settle on that one. And I have this quote. So I, there's this quote in Viola Davis's book, uh, Finding Me. And she's talking about her experience as an actor at Juilliard. And she says, it was arduous listening and watching white guest actors perform, white playwrights coming in to speak, white projects, white characters, a European approach to the work, speech, voice, movement. Everyone was geared toward molding and shaping you into a perfect white actor. The unspoken language was that they set the standard, that they're better. I'm a dark-skinned Black actress with a deep voice. No matter how much I adhere to the training, when I walk out into the world, I will be seen as a dark-skinned Black woman with a deep voice. Hell, when I got out there in the world, I would be called for jobs based on me. That quote really resonated with me because to me it feels like you know, one of the dangers of white supremacy or doing everything from a white lens. You can't look at a black individual or a Hispanic individual or an Asian individual and shape that person through a white lens. Um, it reminds me of your story because though you had training at excellent post-secondary institutions, you weren't prepared for how white supremacy in your colleagues or in the field would affect you as a, a professional. Knowing what people like Viola Davis experienced and are experiencing racism in the acting field, if and perhaps when you encounter that in acting, um, how do you think you will uh, respond as an actor? So <laughs> um, if I'm totally honest, it's a question that I don't think I've been ready to face. Okay. You know, because like we've talked about so far, it's it's always a fear. Like you said, those little mosquito bites, they come and go. And you just hope that it's something that you don't have to deal with. Um, for me, the reality is, as an African-American man in this world, I may always face racism mm -hmm. in any space I go into in any industry that I go into, it seems like we are in a very difficult, discriminatory climate in the world. And it may not be something that I can escape as much as I would love to. So I feel more prepared though, to deal with it. I know what it looks like. I know what it feels like. It's not as shocking and hurtful anymore to deal with. Um, I know how to check it. I know how to handle it. I've had the experience in dealing with it. And I know that sounds terrible, but it is, it is what it is. And so far, my experiences in acting have not mirrored the racist experiences that I've had in speech. Um, you know, it's, it's more covert in the industry it's not as in your face. Um, I remember just in all of my auditions in general, they always tell you like, after the commercial comes out or the show or whatever, look to see who booked it, look to see what they may have done differently. And whenever you get an audition, it shows you like the breakdown. We're looking for a Black 27 to 35 year old man who's quirky whatever and um they'll specify the race it'll be like black pacific islander ethnically ambiguous the term they use for mixed race and then you look at the commercial when it comes out and it's a white man or a white girl and i'm like what is this i remember audition for popeyes and the commercial comes out and the majority of the cast are white and i'm like okay 
So you do see stuff like that. And all I can really do is laugh because like I said, you know, it's just a reality of being a minority, being a person of color, but it has not so far been as traumatic as my experience in speech. I, I rarely ever see it and feel it in acting if I'm honest so far. Right. So what do you think, um, you know, we talked about the power of shared stories and lived experiences. What do you think has contributed to your resilience and feeling like, okay, I've experienced it, but, you know, I might've had some PTSD, but I think I will be able to move through life, even though I know I may encounter this again. What do you think it was? Um, so I, I can't remember where I saw this. It may have been like a research article where they talked about how children are born with different levels of resilience. Mm -hmm. And I've always just been a very resilient person. I've always been very persistent. My mother would always laugh and tell people like one child I don't have to worry about is Jonathan because he's going to find a way to get what he needs. And I just believe in the power of modifying and adjusting to your environment, to the situations you deal with. And like I talked about in the video, um, no one is going to fight for you the way you're going to fight for yourself. And, you know, we can pray all day, but until you actively work to change your situation, a little fairy isn't going to come down and make your dreams come true and tap you on the shoulder and make things happen. Like you have to really sit down, feel how you're going to feel if it's a terrible situation and figure out a way to get through it. Um, I think the only way to, to go through society is to be adaptable and learn and grow. So I, I try to apply that in all of my my situations in life in general. I mentioned earlier that I love quotes. Um, yeah. One quote that I read from you um, is my new favorite one. Um, can you share the quote that you said about the tree? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, gosh, you are not a tree. If you want to move, move. I think that was the quote. It's like if you and, don't like where you are. Right. If you don't like where you are, if you don't like where you are, you're not a tree, move or something <laughs> like that. And I remember I was leaving South Carolina. My parent, my father was angry. My siblings were angry. And I'm like, I don't like it here. Like nothing's keeping me here. I don't have a family. I'm not going to stay in a place where I don't want to be. And I've always just kind of lived with that mentality. That's agency. <laughs> no lie. Kristen has said it to me like three times um, yeah. <laughs> in the last week. She just loves that quote. So score two for Jonathan. I think he wins this round. <laughs> I, think so. I think that tree quote for me gets extra points. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite. <laughs> in this episode, we discussed racial trauma and resilience with Dr. Jonathan White. We truly believe that the practice of trauma-informed care as a universal precaution in all medical and educational institutions is what is needed to create safe spaces for people experiencing trauma symptoms, all trauma symptoms, including those related to racial trauma. If you enjoyed today's content, please don't forget to like and subscribe to the Agentic Voice podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, take care.